one day finished. Those of you who are counting, you have <laughs> six more to go. <laughs> but who's counting, right? Tonight I'd like to talk about accessing the Dharma. Accessing the Dharma. I think we mistakenly believe uh, that it's... Um, that just living life will access the Dharma, right? Just to maintain things the way we've been doing it and maybe sit 45 minutes a day. I don't know how we feel it, but uh, that, that's going to be, that's the Dharma. The Dharma's life. I can access it by living. Well, I hope this talk would suggest uh, otherwise because we've been living for however many decades we've been alive. And many of us uh, haven't used those decades for really growing in wisdom or understanding, but rather for um, often deepening our sense of personal pain. So uh, tonight I'd like to talk about how to access it and the principles that allow us to access it. I think that's better said. I was, uh, as I mentioned, I was uh, in the Seattle earthquake. And uh, interestingly enough, um, after a trauma like that, people can't stop talking about it. And I also noticed that I'm bringing it up every chance I get in my Dharma talks. (laughs) So there's something going on there. in any case, uh, uh, you know, I sort of saw the earth turn to jello. I mean, it just became a wave, like liquid. And I was outside at the time, and I really felt that. I saw the, uh, our um, driveway just turn to jello. It was just a wave in it. It gives you a different perspective of, of the solidity of things. Interestingly enough, uh, the next day's paper... Um, talked about how to prevent or to maintain your household in the middle of a quake. And it had suggestions that, you know, you bore down 20 feet and put rods in your house and you clamp your foundation to these pillars in the ground. And <clears throat> I mean, in other words, what it was doing, it was through the force of will, or this, is, this was what I projected it was doing, through the force of willpower, through the force of mental uh, effort, we could control our life so that the quake wouldn't be a part of it. And if it happened, it would just be a minor, um, a minor problem. I mean, we go on living. It might shake a little bit, rattle some windows, but the, if you do the right thing with the windows, the windows won't even break. And there's this constant feeling that if we just get it right, we build the structures right, we do this, we can, we can create a life that doesn't have any aberrations, doesn't have any mistakes to it, because an earthquake is a mistake, right? We build a house, and the damn thing falls down, because earth, well, we didn't build it solid enough. We've got to put pillars in the ground. We have a relationship, and it falls apart. Well, we didn't try hard enough. You know, there's always that sense that we're failures. 
not that life is taking or showing us something, but that if we just exert a little more influence, a little more power, we could have controlled this catastrophe. It's a, I, I read this, uh, I thought it was rather significant to the point of what I'm talking about. It said, for a long time, it had seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life. But there was always some obstacle in the way, something to get over first, some unfinished business, time still to be served, a debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. That's the switch from fighting the Dharma to accessing the Dharma. But that's not an easy switch to make. And as you see in the course of a single day, how much have you surrendered or accepted or allowed what's going on inside of you in the course of of today's? Turbulence. Usually the first day is a rather turbulent one. There's a lot of settling down, a lot of physical energy, often a lot of fatigue, um, kind of a heavy uh, sense of stress that we've been under. And the mind is so tired in all of that that it just feels like it's not giving it enough effort. I just forced it a little more. I could have the perfect sitting and what's all this noise in the mind and all these emotions and patterns of impatience and what's all that about? I've just got to get rid of those things. Get to that third or fourth day when I'm over the hump and thank God the retreat goes that long and I can settle back and this is what it means to be in a retreat. Not to have any obstacles, no bumps, nothing in the road. Now I can sail on. Now I'm there. Right? And so many learned sophisticated sitters won't even do weekends because all I have is the bump. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, what am I doing that for? It's just the hurt. It's what we're going through right now is that weekend. I just, I have to just get over that, you see. That's not, that hasn't everything to do to say, it doesn't have anything to say about how I live. It doesn't have anything to say about what my life is about. Yes. We're not accessing the Dharma with that thinking. It's the texture of our life. It's everything that's there. And I appreciate teaching short retreats because it shows us what we've lived with, what we live with every single day. And that's what's coming up. What's coming up is your life, is our life, moment after moment. The patterns we live with, the impatience, the judgment, the loneliness, the grief, the self-doubt. This is what meditation is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring forth or allow us to access those bumps. I love the metaphor, but I have to get it straight because I get so many notes about which side of the mirror am I on? But in any case, I love the metaphor of a one-way mirror. Now, we're on the mirrored side of the one-way mirror, not in the observation booth, okay? So you're on the mirrored side. Everybody got that? (laughs) So at first, when we enter the room, which is a 
equivalent to day one of a meditation retreat. It's like, I don't even know what the mirror, how do I even get the mirror right? Where's the room? How do I turn on a light? It's like trying to figure out the mechanics of the meditation just to know that we're in the room. That's the settling down. That's allowing the body and mind to come in orientation, in time and place to where it is. It's so busy. There's so much speed associated with how we've lived that we have, we just breeze by. It's like a stone skipping on a lake. We just touch life, just, and then we bounce. And then we touch and then we bounce again. And then we skip 20 times in a, in a moment, just briefly, briefly touching life. And so that's what this day is about, is coming into that sense of settledness where the stone actually hits the water and knows it's in the water, knows it's there. The second day, shouldn't talk about what <laughs> will occur, but I'll just mention it, um, is we begin to see our reflection in the mirror. And for most of us, we've been running from that reflection. It's not often a pretty reflection to see. That's true for everyone. Because what we see are the painful parts of ourselves, the greed and the dislike and the aversion and the dishonesty and the imperfection and the unnatural quality of ourselves. And that's the reflection of that one-way mirror. Then as we begin to approach the mirror, funny thing happens on a one-way mirror. If you get very close, you begin to see through the image itself. And it's transparent, right? Because there's no silver backing on a one-way mirror. And the retreat begins to show different levels of ourselves all along the way. And so as we approach this image, the only way that there is any sort of salvation in our ability to approach is by staring at the mirror. We can't look away and expect that reflection to be anything but a fear. We won't look at something if we're terrified of it. But as we approach, we're going to feel all the feelings that we've had which have kept the reflection away from us. And all of the fear that we have of being who we most not want to be, who we least want to be. And all of that, that's just part of the retreat. It's just part of self-knowledge. It's just part of coming into who we are, and everyone who meditates goes through that. It often doesn't, I mean, um, and, to, and to pass the beauty of that bump in the road in order to get to the point where it's transparent is to miss the fear that we carry within ourselves. The sense of reflection is important as the sense of transparency is what I'm saying. Because each one of those is a level of understanding that we hold ourselves to be. It's not to get over the reflection in order to see the, the reflection is transparent. Do people see this analogy? Is it working? 
You've got to be on the right side of the mirror for this to work. <laughs> so what are the qualities, the postures, the principles that allow access to the Dharma? And I have a few that I'd like to discuss tonight and elaborate a little bit on. But before I do, I read this by Jerry Seinfeld, and I thought, well, this is definitely Dharma. (laughs) And he says, life is truly a ride. We're all strapped in and no one can stop it. When the doctor slaps your behind, he's ripping your ticket and away you go. As you make each passage from youth to adulthood to maturity, sometimes you put your arms up and sometimes you scream. Sometimes you just hang on to the bar in front of you, but the ride is the thing. I think the most you can hope for at the end of life is that your hair is messed up, you're out of breath, and you didn't throw up. (laughs) So the ride is the thing here. The ride is the thing. Not in order for the ride to end or the ride to get over anything or the bumps in the road or anything. It's the ride. It's the going. It's the movement. So what are these principles? Well, the first principle... Now, these principles are um, important for us to have the right orientation to Dharma, but they are principles that, uh, with further investigation and understanding, deepen along the path of the Dharma as well. And so the first of these principles uh, that I call... um, the principles for accessing uh, the truth, is that facts, facts, are friendly. Now you think, well, facts are friendly. What does that mean? Well, you know, I look on the Buddha's life more metaphorically than historically. We really don't know what happened during that time. And, but the, the metaphorical representation of the Buddha's life has a lot to say to us in this day and age. For he was a a prince, so to speak, and sheltered from the uh, poverty and disease of his time, and uh, lived a life that was as comfortable as you could live back then. I'm sure it wasn't pain-free, but it was uh, very luxurious, given the time. And he... uh, Somehow or other, he was able to see someone dying and somebody sick uh, through his uh, maturity, and he said, "Whoa, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit my game plan here. Uh, but I have to include these facts. I mean, what I've been told about life is that it's kind of, uh, you know, event-free. It's not going to be a lot of problem." a lot of suffering here. And now all of a sudden I'm facing a corpse and somebody who is very ill. How does that resonate uh, with what I thought life to be about? And it was the fact that he was able to turn towards those facts and include them in his life's perspective that allowed him to develop the wisdom and compassion that he did. 
Now, we have built a society in this time and age that is probably as affluent and as rich as any society will ever be because there aren't that many resources left uh, for it to be any better. And we're at the peak now where per capita use of resources has maximized. And now it's going to gas and oil and etc. And yet, are we willing to look outside of our castle walls, of our princely and princessly life, to see how life is for others and for ourselves? Does our life include aging, disease, and death? Because those are facts that have a lot to say to us about how to live. And unless we start including those facts in the way that we live, we will live in denial and fear in a constricted and confined way. Usually what happens when we face the facts of our life, when we approach the one-way mirror and we begin to see its reflection, who we are, un distorted from what we want to be. It's not what we want to be like. It's like facing ourselves head on and we go, whoa, that's the fact of who we are. We usually have a tendency, most of us have a tendency to blame those facts. Well, it's because my mother. God, I'm this way because my mother. I can't face this way being because of me. It has to be because of someone else. It has to be because of somebody's influence, something, anything. But please, give me some respite. Allow me to have a little bit of denial between this abject reality that's in front of me and my need uh, to embrace that fact or to deny that fact. And that's what we do so often. I mean, we even, it's in our, it's in our language. You make me angry. You make me angry. Which means that all I have to do is I don't have to take responsibility for the anger, the fact of my anger. I just have to remove you from the scene. And therefore my anger will be cured. Just eliminate you and everything will be fine. So that sense of blame, that sense of, uh, you know, sometimes we'll be sitting and we'll just have a, a mood hit us, an emotion. And then we look around for some way to verify it, some tag to put on it. I'm angry because I don't like that person's way he or she sits or they're whatever they move too much sneeze cough but we are responsible for our inward life now that doesn't mean that if you're angry with someone that there isn't communication that needs to happen but It is our anger. We have to work with it. We can't disown it. We take responsibility for it. We don't take responsibility for the cause, for why the anger arose necessarily, but we take responsibility for it being there. We take responsibility for the reflection that's in front of our face. And as these things begin to percolate, being able or willing to hold them and to be able to, to look at the mirror and to see that without wiggling, 
without trying to, because, but just let, just let it in. The facts eventually are friendly. At first, they're horrifying. Someone said uh, the truth will liberate you, but first it'll make you miserable. It does. It has that impact. It does make you miserable. It's, oh, wow, is that who I am? But the willingness, the willingness to include that fact, eventually it starts supporting the Dharma. It's accessing the Dharma. It's allowing the Dharma to tell you the complete story of who you are. That's not the complete story. That's just one perspective. It's a bright one. But it's just one perspective. But be able to face the fact without blame. And that means self-blame. Oh, look how bad I am. Look how awful I am. That's not it either. Jesus, look how much anger is in me. It has nothing to do with what's in you. It's just arising. And as you approach the mirror, you get a sense of that. The faces, the images change. It has nothing to do with anything except just what's occurring. So that's the first of the principles by which the Dharma is accessed. Unless we face the facts, how can we ever access the Dharma? And we have such a, we've given such a strong and undue representation to thought and the intellect in this culture that to face the fact experientially, just what is there, without putting a whole storyline upon it, how awful we are, or how terrible we are, or how this or that happened, or how my mother, you wouldn't, the reason I'm like this is because, comes automatically for us. Because we have built that muscle, that psychic muscle to such an extent that it's just there. We want an excuse for being who we are. And yet it's just facing it. It's just looking at it. Without any storyline, without any, just being right there with it. So that's the first. And you know, um, it's interesting, I, as I was looking at this uh, topic, uh, there's a, um, there was a, I was reading Mr. Rogers, a speech that he gave. Mr. Rogers is the friend in the neighborhood for those, for 30 years he's been doing a children's program. And I'd kind of written him off as kind of a, you know, like... <laughs> sort of dismissed him. But I was reading this thing, his speech, and it is incredibly filled with, I mean, it's so filled with wisdom and understanding. Uh, And he was being honored by uh, public television for 30 years of working with kids. And he tells the following story. Just listen to it, because we have gotten ourselves so far from the willingness to face our facts, and there's so much pretension and so much camouflage that we have between ourselves and the facts of who we are, that we have lost a sense of resonance with any kind of, of quality of naturalness. And we seek natural remedies. We seek naturalness in places 
It's almost like we go to workshops in order to learn how to be who we already are. But listen to, so this is what he says. He says, I know a couple whose five-year-old son kept pestering them to have some time alone with his newborn brother. His parents were concerned that his rivalrous feelings might prompt him to hurt the baby, so they kept refusing. Finally, he was so persistent that they said, all right, you can be with the baby, but for just one minute. The mother and dad watched as the five-year-old walked to the crib. He didn't even touch the baby. All he did was say, what's it like? I'm starting to forget. Isn't it? Haven't we started to forget? Or maybe we're long since even knowing what, that there's anything to remember. You know, the pain of approaching that mirror is the pain of coming back into ourselves, of relocating ourselves, of finding our seat again. And it is painful. But it's only painful because of all of the fear and pretension that we've put in the way between it and us. And we're recovering ourselves through the willingness now to face the conflict rather than to run from it. That's all it is. That's all that's occurring. To be patient with this process. Mark Twain said, get your facts first, and then you can distort them however you like. (laughs) Let's get the facts first. So the second one, the second principle, is we can trust our experience. This, this again, is uh, enormous. We can trust our experience. I mean two things by that. One is that the mind, the awareness, your heart, has the ability to be able to hold the experiences that it sees in the mirror. That it need not run from anything. That emotions, which is perhaps the most fearful component of those reflections, can only make you feel them. That's the limit of the power they have over you. And if you are willing to open yourself enough so that you feel what you feel, that's all it can do to you. An image is only as frightful as the fear that we have of it, not because it itself contains anything to be frightened of. We're frightened for what it might say about us. And so we just let them in. I don't care. I'm tired of running. I'm in this room, I've paid my money, I've got seven days. I'm tired of running. Just, I'm, that's it. Let the reflections come. I can hold them. What's it going to do? The willingness to trust our experience. And the other component of that is that there's something beyond knowledge that's trustworthy. We have put most of our chips on the poker table on our intellect. 
But here we're going on the other side of our intellect, before thoughts, and touching the real fabric of life itself. The Sistine Chapel, where the hand of God and the hand of humankind begin to touch, is what we're doing. The gap is the intellect. As it touches... And that's what we're doing here. There's something more fundamentally stable, really, and sane within the field of experience, directly, firsthand, experiencing what is in front of us. Just what is, without any judgment or comparison, or just what is, without any conclusions or opinions. We can trust our experience. And we can trust also that even without our thinking, with our constant reflection, with our constant turning it over in our mind, that there will be clarity and understanding, that there will be a way that we will be able to handle those experiences and move according to what we need to do and not react as we have from the fear we have of them. But to be able to hold them, to see them, and in this way be known. So to trust our experience is the first principle. Second principle uh, is to, uh, the facts are friendly is the first principle and that we can trust our experience. You see how this accesses the Dharma? If either one of those, if we're timid in either one of those, then the Dharma is going to only allow so much of us in. But as we deepen and have, exp- have um, the history of being able to trust and hold even fear or joy or f- sorrow and be okay on the other end of it, then we begin to trust our ability to hold experiences more and more. And we know that these facts, these experiences, these things that come up are to our benefit and support our own spiritual growth. And so they feed each other. The third principle, and one that's uh, very much tied to the first two, is that others' ideas about life uh, is not a guide for me. I can't rely on what other people say, other people's knowledge for my sense of direction, for my sense of, of, uh, of commitment. Because you know what? Society has been based on a false assumption. And everything that is, it's a premise, right? For those who have some knowledge in just basic logic, you have a premise, A equals B. But if A doesn't equal B, and the whole premise is built on A equaling B, then all the logic, everything that it's built upon is false. And society's premise has been built upon individuality, separatism, not connectedness. And so everything that we have learned has to be challenged. Doesn't that make sense? And therefore, everything that we have learned, everything that we have we have to say, well, is this true? Let me look at that. It's not that we want to throw out every bit of wisdom in our culture. We just want to hold it up to our own experience and see and validate it. 
because we can't, we can't just trust the assumptions of life when they're based on, a, on the wrong ideas. I worked with a man uh, in hospice care. He was 36 years old. He was dying of lymphoma. He was a very, very high executive in Microsoft, uh, worth tens of millions of dollars. And um, he, um, so I, I, was, I was seeing him uh, as part of the hospice program, and he said, um, I said, do you ever regret, you know, what, what, because Microsoft has the, uh, the worth, work ethic of, uh, you know, 10, 12-hour days, and you give everything to the corporation, and, you know, and uh, he had uh, f- three small children and uh, was bemoaning the fact that he hadn't spent enough time with his children. And he says, you know, with my illness, everything has changed. Everything, I questioned every assumption I've ever made now. Everyone. Man on the edge of his life. And it took that illness for to him to be to reach the brink so that he could say oh you know to for him to be able to face his reflection really what reflections are we hiding from that's what reflections is it going to take a terminal illness for your willingness to face it So, facts are friendly. We can trust our experience. Others' ideas about life is not a guide for me. I can see I only have seven minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, fourth one is uh, growth and learning are always possible within an experience. Uh, and this is essential because why would we want to face it? How come facts are friendly? Well, friendly towards what? towards our growth and understanding, towards our sense of inclusion and wholeness. As long as we fight with the facts, we will be fractions of what we are. We will always be a portion. We won't be whole because we're fighting against the very images that we're portraying. Once we start including the facts, once we start allowing the whole range of who we are, our emotions, our whole psyche into our awareness, then we begin to feel the effects of being whole and complete. Carl Jung said he would rather be whole than good. And what he was pointing towards was, well, as long as there's good parts of you and bad parts of you, there's going to be that tension inherent within allowing some parts to come out and other parts to be held at bay. But when you just hold and open the whole door and say, come on in, everything, come on in, then there's a much more of a sense of of relaxation with life and a harmony and a resonance with life itself because there's nothing that's creating tension anymore except our inward world of thoughts and ideas. So it's an important to understand that if we trust the facts, they will impart a sense of completion upon us. They will give us a sense of wholeness. The next principle is that suffering is not whimsical. That there's a cause for suffering. And it's not just, you know, a mistake in our life. It's not just that 
if we did everything right, we wouldn't have any suffering. It's a, it's a, a misperception. It's the only way the universe can get your attention and say, look, you're misperceiving something here. There's fear here. You need to look at this. It's, suffering is a way to point you back to the mirror. So let me look. Let me look. Let me see what's going on here. And what Buddhism is, what this course is about, is decoding the messages of suffering. So that we have some blueprint, some way to be able to use this pain towards, by embracing those facts that we have denied or um, avoided, and thereby begin to heal ourselves to the very sense of wholeness itself. <clears throat> and so suffering is, is a reminder that we're still denying, that we're still avoiding. Come face the mirror. Come on, turn around. Turn around. And we need to know that. That has to be a principle on which we stand in order for the Dharma to feed us, in order for us to access the Dharma. And then the next principle is that growth is inherent and positive. Have any of you had the experience of having, having had a very difficult time sometime in your life and then a few years later, look back at that time and see how it is that it brought you where you are now. And that what you thought was a terrible situation, a catastrophe of pain and problem at the time, really was a supportive way to get you out of something into a different reality where you could be accessible and grow in a different way. And as long as we move with that, with a sense of it being supportive so that we can learn from it and we're learning as we go, then inherently it has to be positive. It all has to be positive. If we recoil from it and become cynical and bitter from it, then it's going to be a negative experience because we have turned ourselves away from that mirror. But as long as we're learning, okay, what is going on here? What's all the problem? What's going on? As long as we do that, It has to be in a positive direction. Growth will always be in a positive direction. We may not be able to see that for some time after the event, but it will be in a positive direction. I like uh, this poem by Mary Oliver, whose poems I've been reading today, as an example of that very thing of the perfection of every fact. Every night the owl with his wild monkey face calls through the black branches and the mice freeze and the rabbits shiver in the snowy fields. And then there is a long, deep trough of silence when he stops singing and steps into the air. I don't know what death's ultimate purpose is, but I think this, whoever dreams of holding his life in his fist year after year into the hundreds of years has never considered the owl how he comes exhausted through the snow, through the icy trees, past snags and vines, wheeling out of barns and church steeples, turning this way and that through the mesh of every obstacle, undetoured by anything, filling himself time and time again 
with a red and digestible joy sickled up from the lonely white fields, and how, at daybreak, as though everything has been done that must be done, the fields swell with a rosy light, the owl fades back into the branches, and the snow goes on falling flake after perfect flake. That every, every component part of life, when seen from a sense of growth, a sense of learning, has the advantage of its perfection, will give us within... Once we allow ourselves to drop the resistance and to face that fact, will ultimately serve us within that perfection and bring us to greater harmony. Growth is inherent and positive. What we add to any truth, to any fact that we see, is extra. Anything that we add, what we want to see is the pure image itself, just what is there, just the fact, not adding anything, not adding an opinion, a judgment, a conclusion, nothing. No obscuration whatsoever. I want the truth. I just want to know. Let me look at it. Just let me look at it. Let me see. And then we take a step closer to the mirror. And suddenly, it's translucent. There's never been a problem. And all of that, what was it about? What was all that about? Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.